So this is week four of our Only God series for this year, uh, what we've subtitled Four Point Turn. Basically, we've been looking at four turns or four changes that we can make in our attitude of heart and in our habits and behaviors uh, in order to experience a stronger and richer and more vibrant relationship with God. That's why we do this Only God series, to strengthen our relationship with God, what can be kind of elusive and somewhat nebulous for so many of us. And uh, this four-point turn actually has come from a single verse uh, in the Old Testament that we've been camped out on this entire series. And so again, this week, uh, as in many of the other weeks, we want to start off by just kind of reminding ourselves of this by reading this out loud together. Okay, so we're going to throw it on the screen and uh, across all our locations, we're going to read this out loud together. Are you ready? It's 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. Here we go. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This has been where we've been anchored this entire Only God series because God provides his people and for us today, these four turns. We've looked at three of them so far. We've looked at you know, what it would mean in our lives to humble ourselves. We've looked at what it could look like to pray to a greater degree, uh, as well as what seeking the face of God means. We talked about that last week, and so there's only one to go. And uh, personally, I feel like this is the toughest, but arguably the, the most significant of all, this idea of turning from our wicked ways. That's what we're going to talk about today, turning from our wicked ways. And I, I feel like this is going to be difficult for really two reasons. The first um, is just you know, when you consider the definition of what wicked means, we all need to appreciate that uh, we're not talking about the version of the word wicked that you know, teenagers in the 1980s who wore concert shirts and had mullets used to say, you know, remember, wicked. Like, we're not talking about that today. We are talking about the biblical definition of the word wicked, which means mental disregard for justice, righteousness, truth, honor, and virtue, evil in thought and life, depravity, sinfulness, and criminality. That's what we're talking about today when we're talking about wicked. It's, it's a pretty hardcore conversation, which kind of lends me to the other reason I think that this will be difficult because I feel like most of us are going to intuitively feel like that really doesn't apply to, to us. I mean, we understand what wicked is, but, but we're not wicked, right? Like, at least not that wicked. And you know, that's kind of the challenge of today, I think, because even personally, when I think about wickedness, you know, I've got images in my mind of, of what wickedness looks like. I'm sure a lot of us do. These days, you know, some of them include, you know, guys with, you know, black kind of hoods and masks over their face with knives in their hands with innocent bystanders in, or in orange jumpsuits kneeled in front of them, in front of a TV camera ready to execute them and broadcast that beheading on the internet all over the world to invoke fear across the planet. That, that, that's one kind of image of, of wickedness, at least in a mind like mine. But when it comes to most of us, you know, maybe we get a little lead-footed from time to time when we're driving or, you know, Cut a few corners here and there, drop the occasional four-letter word, maybe once in a while have 
you know, one or two extra drinks, but I mean, come on, wicked. Like, are we really serious? Is that, is that, you know, is that what we're talking about today? And I uh, found it interesting. A, a couple weeks ago, before I was even in the headspace of this morning's message, uh, I was just reading the newspaper and I found out that um, clinically, studies have discovered a second group of people who would diagnose as equally sinister to murderers, to, you know, stereotypically wicked people. In fact, there was a study uh, in Britain where a personality test was administered to this other group of people and it was measured against a group of people uh, in the local prison hospital who were notorious killers. So it contrasted the results of these personality tests between murderers and this other group of people. And listen to what this found. In the results, the other group was more histrionic, more fake, and scored higher on superficial charm, insincerity, and egocentricity. The study found that this other group was more narcissistic, less empathetic, and scored higher on manipulation and grandiosity. They were more compulsive and more excessive in their passions, and they scored higher on rigidity, stubbornness, perfectionism, and dictatorial habits. Can you believe that? There's another group that scored higher in all those things than murderers. You want to guess what that other group was? Not murderers. Managers. They were managers. This survey studied high-level corporate executives and discovered that they scored higher on every one of the things in the personality test with the exception of one compared to murderers. They scored lower on their propensity to be physically aggressive. So today, basically, the moral of the story is if you're thinking about killing someone but you're too wimpy to do it, well, maybe management is for you. (laughs) Found out that Managers also scored higher on conscientiousness, order, self-discipline, and achievement orientation, which I suppose is why managers can generally keep themselves out of being behind bars. But, but I got to tell you, as I was eating my breakfast cereal that morning, it was a pretty, it was a pretty haunting thought to actually face the idea that what is residing in a heart like mine is no different than what is residing in the heart of people who have taken the life of other people. That there is actually wickedness and not an insignificant amount that lives in a heart like this. And just to kind of broaden the spectrum here a little bit, um, get more than us supervisors into the conversation, I actually saw a similar survey done, similar analysis uh, involving people uh, who use social media. Uh, you know, simply garden variety people who like to post things on Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and things like that. And uh, the, the author of the article that was doing the analysis had said that at a, at a deeply subconscious level, meaning most of us, you know, don't deliberately do this or, or, or know that this is what's driving us, but at, at a deeply subconscious level, um, most social media posts are done for one or a combination of five reasons. You may have never thought about this before. This author suggested that one of, or more of five reasons drive social media posts. Number one, image crafting. Number two, narcissism. Number three, attention craving. Number four, jealousy inducing. Or number five, loneliness. 
image crafting, narcissism, attention craving, jealousy inducing, or loneliness. That's ultimately subconsciously what drives most people to post most things on social media, if you can believe it or not. Kind of makes you wonder, hopefully makes you think the next time you're gonna post or take that selfie or you know, take the, the picture of that gourmet meal that for some reason you feel the propensity to broadcast to your entire social circle. Um, to maybe take a lap around the track of your heart and ask what is actually going on and driving that in that moment. Because the truth today from 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is that if we're going to relate to God properly, we need to first embrace a very fundamental theological idea called the universality of sin. That even though humanity was created by God in the image of God to bear his likeness, because of the reality of sin in our fallenness and brokenness, people in our heart of hearts are deeply evil. We possess a deep degree of darkness and brokenness and fallenness and sin. What the Bible and what 2 Chronicles 7 would describe as wickedness. The prophet Jeremiah knew this. He said in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? He understood the universality of sin. But for many of us, you know, unless you see someone who like their kid is threatened or you see a, a couple who are right in the heat of the throes of separation, separation or divorce, you, you you barely see that level of ugliness and vitriol kind of bubble to the surface in people. Most of the time, most people can kind of cope and manage it and where it exists, it kind of manifests itself in, in more subversive ways. But the Bible would teach that we need to be honest with ourselves and actually acknowledge that those dynamics exist deep within the crevices of every one of our hearts, not just the hearts of murderers, or even managers, but the hearts of humans because of the reality of the universality of sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that most of us did not get out of bed to come to church to hear that this morning. In fact, I was talking to a friend from outside the church who was telling me this week that if they were ever to come visit Southridge, the reason that they would come to visit Southridge would be, in their words, to be inspired and as they told me that, I thought, okay, that means you're not coming this Sunday. I'll remember to invite you on a, on a different week. Can you imagine, you know, what the lunchtime conversations after today are going to be like? So, Dad, what'd you learn in church? Well, son, I learned that I'm a wicked person. Pass the ketchup, you know. Um, this is admittedly not the Tony Robbins method of inspiring people. And yet, this is something that the Bible would want us all to face. That Second Chronicles 7 would want us to Face And the Bible, to push this a little further, the Bible would suggest that there are actually two ways that we can react to this kind of truth. One, the Bible would call the wise way and one, it would call the foolish way. The wise way and the foolish way. I heard this explained once by author and clinical psychologist Henry Cloud as he unpacked uh, some verses from the Proverbs, particularly in Proverbs chapter 9. Look at what it says in verse seven. It says there, whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. 
What he's talking about here in this proverb is a mocker or more accurately what the Bible would describe as a foolish person and how they respond to rebuke or to correction or to harsh truth about themselves. And so they don't like it too much. They can get abusive back. They can respond a certain way by resisting absorbing that truth. That's basically what Henry Cloud said is the biblical definition of a foolish person. That instead of absorbing truth, even harsh truth as it's presented to them, they do everything at all costs to resist it. They deny, they deflect, they blame, they redirect, they rationalize. They do all kinds of things to excuse that truth from being real in their lives. He says that's the definition of a biblically foolish person. When the light of truth is shone on them, they'll do everything that they can to redirect and change the direction of the light. Contrast that with what the proverb says in the very next verse. In verse 8 of Proverbs 9, it says, Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. In direct opposition to the way that a biblically foolish person responds to harsh truth about themselves, the wise person actually embraces it. They want more of it and they want to learn and grow because of it. And what Henry Cloud described is that the difference between a biblically wise person and a biblically foolish person is how they respond when the light of truth is shone upon them. In the case of the biblically wise person, they absorb it and they change as a result where the biblically foolish person does everything that they can possibly do to change the direction of the light so they don't have to absorb it and change themselves. And I say all that because this morning through 2 Chronicles 7, we're being confronted with some harsh truth about the universality of sin and the reality of the evil and darkness and wickedness in all of our human hearts. And we have a choice of what we do with that light of truth being shone on us. And I know for most of us, even though we don't want to hear this, you know, we, for most of us, we, we might want to default by saying, you know, that doesn't apply to me because a lot of people that I talk to both in and out of the church will describe themselves as a good person. They say, I'm not a wicked person. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a generally morally good person. You know, I'm kind of a law-abiding citizen. I mean, they'll describe themselves as a good person. You know how Jesus reacted when someone described him as a good person? Look at what it says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 18. Jesus says, why do you call me good? He says, no one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. And even Jesus, God in human form, in being associated with and exposed to all of the human temptations and tendencies, understood real time the reality of the universality of sin and understood how dark and sinister the human heart can actually be in those deep, dark corners that we don't want to pay attention to. But here's the thing. If we're willing to make the biblically wise choice and allow the light of truth to be shone on us and absorb it and react to it, 2 Chronicles 7 teaches that we can experience a vibrancy and a richness of a relationship with God like we never have before. And you might be wondering how on earth that could be possible. And and as I've been thinking about it, I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation that Becky and I have been having lately uh, with regards to our marriage relationship and how we relate together as, 
as a couple. Um, you need to know that uh, in just over a week's time, Becky and I will be celebrating our 15-year wedding anniversary. So I hope that some of you are thinking like, you know, it's about high time someone buy this woman a medal. After all, she's got to sleep beside someone who, if they weren't so wimpy, they'd be a murderer, but they manage instead. And, uh, you know, she really deserves a, a pat on the back at least. And, uh, you know, with this anniversary coming up, been obviously reflecting on things and, uh, you know, like any couple, after 15 years, you've had some high seasons and some low seasons, some times where you're really thriving and sometimes where you're really struggling, sometimes where you feel like you're winning and sometimes where you feel like you're failing. And lately, the reflection that I've had is, what's the difference between those two seasons? What's the difference in the way that we relate to each other in those two seasons? Because it's not all just circumstantial. It's not just that there's sunny days and and rainy days, although circumstances do play into pressurizing and accentuating how people and couples relate for sure. But it's not the circumstances that that cause Becky and I to to relate in certain ways. And so I tried to kind of reflect on what the difference is in those seasons. And what I realized, we talked about a little while ago, what I realized is that in those more difficult seasons where we find ourselves, our relationship is fundamentally lacking grace. Grace. That's how I described it. Our relationship gets in these these funks where it fundamentally lacks grace. And the reason is not because we're ungracious or unforgiving people, although that can generally be true and is true of us some of the time. That the reason, more specifically, is that in those funks, in those seasons where we're off or struggling, what's not happening is that one or both of us is not owning the way that we're actually hurting the other person. And because we're not owning the way that we're actually hurting the other person, we're not apologetic for the hurt that we've caused the other person. We're not apologizing. Or if we are, this is a little side note, we're apologizing in a very selfish way. You ever done that? The selfish apology? I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The I'm sorry is basically to get you out of the doghouse. It's not a sincere kind of heartbroken sorrowful apology because you're disappointed in how much you've hurt the other person. It's not others-oriented. It's, it's a self-oriented apology. We do that from time to time as well. But, you know, as we we're talking, I said, the reason we don't experience grace in those situations is because we don't own and apologize for the hurt that we've caused. But when we do, when we do, then forgiveness is possible. And then the hurt can be set free. And then we can start again fresh. When we don't, when we don't own and when we don't apologize, the reason there's no grace is because then that pain kind of festers and it sort of sits there and then new pain falls on top of it and builds and compounds and you kind of go down the downward spiral until you have this huge blow up or until, you know, freak of circumstances, there's enough peacetime that goes on in order to have a reasonable conversation and dig yourself out of that pit. But where we're in seasons where we're really kind of thriving as a couple is when, not when things are going perfectly, but when we're quick to own and quick to apologize sincerely for the hurt that we've caused each other and forgiveness and freedom, you know, flows liberally. Think about those relational dynamics from a spiritual perspective, especially from the perspective of what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says their godly sorrow about your own sinfulness. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. 
but worldly sorrow brings death. See the cycle? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's the grace trigger being launched as people relate to God and why it's so important for you and I to make the wise decision today to allow the light of truth to shine on us to reveal a depth of darkness and wickedness like maybe we've never known or wanted to face before is because when we do and when we bring that awareness that sobriety and the disappointment with what that darkness in the way that it manifests itself has done to God when we bring that sorrowfully to God, you know what happens? God accepts us. And then when we bring that apology for, for disappointing or for hurting or for, you know, sabotaging relationships and for, for breaking God's heart, you know what happens? God forgives us. And you know what happens then when we eagerly want that darkness to, to, to go away where we want to make changes and we want to become a different person but knowing our sinfulness and in our fallenness we don't have the capability to on our own devices God supports us and he changes us over time and transforms us more into his image through the power of Christ and all the while that that's happening as God's accepting us and forgiving us and supporting us and changing us over time. You know what that's called? That's called relating to God the way that he intends a relationship with him to work. What the Bible describes as by grace through faith. That's how God wants to relate to us. That's what it means to properly relate to God. But it is fundamentally stifled if like with Becky and I, we fail to own and to be broken over our own darkness and sinfulness that we bring to the table that hurts and breaks God's heart. Jesus knew this. He taught about this all the time. In fact, one time he actually created a, a, a contrast in a parable. It's found in Luke 18 of two guys who went to the temple to pray. One was a, a so-called religious expert, you know, did all the right things, obeyed all the rules. And they actually prayed at the temple. God, thank you that I'm not a sinner. Thank you that I'm not a, a murderer or an evildoer. Thank you that I'm not like that guy. And Jesus contrasted this with that guy who was a tax collector, one of the more notorious bad guys in first century times. But this tax collector couldn't look up to heaven, the text says. It says all he could do is, was beat his chest and just say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. One person in the contrast said, God, thank you that I'm not a sinner. The other one said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And you know what Jesus said at the end of that parable? Verse 14 of Luke 18, he says, I tell you that this man, the one sorrowful over his own brokenness, rather than the other, the one confident in his own righteousness, went home justified before God, meaning they were in a right relationship with God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's what God's saying in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. When he says that one of the hard right turns for people who want to experience a rich and vibrant relationship with him is turning from our wicked ways. To me, the bottleneck in all of us making that turn today and the 
21st century North American culture that we live in is simply awakening and owning the reality of our own wickedness, that we actually have wickedness in our hearts to turn from. A lot of people in our day and age would like to like us to believe otherwise. In fact, I feel like there's a growing movement that wants to ignore that altogether. Sometimes it's called the positivity movement or the yes movement. It's all about avoiding negativity and criticism at all costs. You know, not listening to negativity or criticism, not surrounding yourself with negativity or criticism, never providing negativity or criticism, just saying positive, affirming things to people, no matter what choices they're making, everything's kind of all good in those, those little bubbles. And you see them popping up all over the place. But you know what happens when we convince ourselves and surround ourselves with people where it's all good? It's all good. We don't need God's acceptance. It's all good. We don't need God's forgiveness. It's all good. We don't need God to support us and change us and transform us into his image because it's all good. If it's all good, we don't need Jesus in our lives. If it's all good, we don't need a relationship with God. But instead, today, God invites you and me in the quietness of our hearts to take a deep look at the darkness and brokenness and ask ourselves, what is there in there that the Bible would describe as wicked? What is there that's prideful, that's envious, that's jealous, that's competitive? What is there that's greedy or lustful? What is there that's you know, lazy or manipulative? What, what is deep in our hearts that may not manifest itself extraordinarily, but subversively? And as we come face to face with it, will we make the wise choice to embrace it, to acknowledge it and to be broken over it and then bring that broken heart awareness to God sorrowfully? Because if we do, God's waiting to accept us, to forgive us, and to support us over time and change us. And what we've learned time and time again in our community over the years, especially over these last 10 years, as God has grown this wonder called our anchor causes. So we've learned this just phenomenal spiritual principle that only when you come face to face and embrace your own brokenness, do you truly experience the beauty of a rich and vibrant relationship with God. Only as we come face to face with the reality of the universality of sin in our own lives and hearts, only when we acknowledge and can name our own wickedness, can we truly experience the acceptance, the forgiveness, the support, the transformation, the love and the grace-based way that God wants to relate to you and me. So let's right now take a hard look in our own hearts and give God some time to point out those things that exist deep down where we may have never paid attention before in hopes that in discovering new levels of our own brokenness, we can actually experience new levels of a richness and vibrancy in our relationships with God. Let's pray. God, we're here now in the quietness of our hearts. Knowing that we've been created by you in your image to bear your likeness, but 
all suffering from a spiritual disease called sin. I pray right now that whether we've thought all our lives that we're a generally good person, that you would help us to look deep within our hearts and get real honest about what's really in there. Help us to make the wise choice and not the foolish choice in how the light of your truth shines and how we respond to it. And help us right now in these moments to come to you with new levels of brokenness, new levels of sorrow over the way our darkness has manifested itself, even subversively to hurt people and to hurt you. Knowing that when we do, we can experience new levels of acceptance and forgiveness and transformation because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we come to you now thankful that by facing our wicked ways, by facing new levels of our brokenness, we can experience new levels of the beauty of a relationship with you. And it's all because of Jesus that we pray these things in his name. Amen.